there is a way to live well in this world, to organize and set up life in such a way that relationships and activities and responses are in proper place and tone, proper posture, where God is first of all known and followed, where relationships are done well, where neighbor is loved. In short, there is a wise way to live. A way that makes God look good and gives the one who lives that way joy. There's a way to interact and love people, to love neighbor, to care and protect. There is wisdom and a way to be wise. While the way to the wise is over here, there's also the fool. The way of foolishness, the categorical fool. And I'm not just talking about when you, that time you've done something foolish or you're prone to do foolish things from time to time, but the, the categorical way of setting up life that is in contradistinction from wisdom. The one who is decidedly and organizationally unwise, who has designed his life to be foolish. Have you ever met someone that set their life up in such a way that it is unhelpful for life? It is destructive to family, destructive to community. It disintegrates relationship. It's destructive to the people they interact with, to the nation itself. I'm not talking about just those single actions, but a way of living life that's opposed to a wise way of living. You've observed them. You have experienced them. I've spent years of my life working in service industry, going from house to house or building to building. I've been in thousands of different places and I've been able to see how people have set up their lives and this is how I will live. This is how I will act. These are the assumptions I will use to make my decisions. And there have been times when I have met people who have set their lives up in opposition to the way that God would set up life. They live as though God does not exist and interaction with them is grating. It's difficult. It's frustrating. And I thought about bringing up a bunch of stories and sharing all these times where I've dealt with difficult situations. Be politically. There we go. The goal of, but the goal of distinction between wisdom and foolishness is not to simply mock the fool, but to entice people to the way they ought to live, to entice people to wisdom. This morning's psalm and ballad and song and and tune for reflection is a reflection that David penned after encountering such a person, such a fool. We're in the middle of a three-week stint, and if if you're paying close attention in Psalm 52, 53, 54, there's almost a subtle series in in the hymnal of the of the ancient people of God that seems to be a bunch of David's psalms that are responses to things he experienced while he was on the run, while he was in the wilderness. Last week in Psalm 52, we we read about this song where David is responding to watching bad things happen to good people. When those priests were killed, he then, in reflection, wrote this psalm. Next week, we're going to hear about the Ziphites. I know you guys are in the edge of your seats. The Ziphites. And the time where they told David's enemy, hey, you know David's over here, right? And he, he writes a psalm in reflection while he, while he remembers that story from when he was in the wilderness. And this week, 
while he's in the wilderness, while he's on the run, he's going to encounter a fool. And this morning, we're going to see what the appropriate response to a fool is and be reminded to long for salvation from the Lord when we encounter fools. That's what David's going to remind us this morning, to long for salvation from the Lord when we encounter fools. But let's start with the story. It's a long story, so I'm not going to have you turn there, but in in 1 Samuel 25, after the incident where Saul has the priest killed, David is still on the run, and he flees to the wilderness of Paran. Now, over in the Middle East, I've been to Israel, I've been into the Negev, which is the south end of Israel, and then Paran is everything below there. It's still wilderness, it's still desolate and hot and arid and not the place I want a vacation. It's, it's where you go when you're on the run, I guess. It's not, it's not a great place to be. Um, but if you are there, you would notice that there are um, Bedouins and they're, they're roaming the area. They know where there's the little bit of grass. They know where there's the little bit of water. They know they can take their sheep over here and they can be here for a couple days and there's just enough stuff that we can feed the sheep here. Then we're going to go to this other place that, that's kilometers away and we'll, we'll take them there and we'll travel from place to place because we know the area and we can take care of our sheep. And David takes his men, he's almost got this Robin Hood thing going on, where he is the one against the current setup of the government, he's got his men who want to be with him, and he goes into the wilderness, and while he's there, he meets some people who are taking care of sheep. And him and his men, they are friendly with these people, and they take care of Um, They they protect them from possible marauders or bandits. And it's said in the story that while they were with them, we didn't lose anything. Nothing was mysteriously lost or stolen. Um, We were taken care of. And it says they were a wall to us, these shepherds. And these shepherds were the shepherds of Nabal. This guy's name is Nabal. And he has these shepherds and this is his stuff. And David is doing this work to take care of his stuff. He's just being generous and nice. And eventually, um, we start hearing about his family and and he's going to send his team to Nabal. Hey, go talk to this guy because we'd like some hospitality. We'd like um, some food and some drink and some, we we need to be able to hang out. It's a feast right now, kind of like we're about, we would have Thanksgiving in November and there's lots of food everywhere. There's a feast going on during this time of their calendar year. Hey, we'd like to share in the feast. Can you show us some hospitality? So he sends some of his men to go bring this message and talk to Nabal. And they're, they're headed that way. And the story says, Nabal, the, the man, he was harsh and badly behaved. What a great... Give me who you are in a, in a sentence. That's great. And his wife, Abigail, was discerning and beautiful. So you can almost hear hints of foolishness and wisdom. Badly behaved, discerning. So the men go, they talk to Nabal, hey, we've been taking care of your shepherds, we've been with them, they've been, ta- they've been protected, taken care of, everything's been really great. We're wondering if you can be hospitable to us. We've been generous, hospitable to you. And we're wondering if you can be hospitable and there's food and drink, there's a feast coming up. We'd love to participate with you. Can you be neighborly with us? And Nabal says, who is David. I don't know David. This guy ran away from his master, I guess. Everybody's running away from their masters right now. Who is David? I don't need to take care of him. 
I don't need to help him. I don't want any part of this. And the story says that he railed on them. Real hospitable guy. Real hospitable guy. So the, the team comes back and says, David, here's what happened. We told him the story and he says, forget you guys. And David says, strap on your swords. Grab your guns, boys. We're going to go take care of this guy. We're going to make an end of this problem. So they are going to Nabal and his, his camp out with the intent to kill them, to end them. And one of the people in this camp out knows Nabal did not do this very well. One, one, of the, one of his servants says, he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. This guy's great. And so one of his servants tells Abigail this. Abigail, David's going to come and kill us because Nabal is so bad. He's going to kill us. And she, yeah, of course he's bad. And yeah, he, he is going to kill us. So she gathers food and drink and sustenance. She puts together hospitality and goes out to meet David. And Abigail, the discerning one, the beautiful one, goes out and meets David and stops him and says, I know my husband is a fool. In fact, that's what his name means. Nabal means fool. Good job, parents. And Abigail says, be kind to us. Because we know the Lord is on your side. We know you're the anointed king. We know you're on the run, but the Lord is on your side. Be kind to us and don't bring salvation by your own hand. Don't you go and wring this guy's neck to solve this problem. The Lord will take care of you. We know he's on your side. The Lord will take care of you. Here is food. Here is drink. I am being hospitable to you. And David hears her wisdom. And he says, you have stopped me from working salvation with my own hand. And they take the gifts, they go, they leave, they part ways. And Abigail returns. And when she returns, Nabal is feasting like a king, the story says. He didn't have, apparently, resources to give to the people that took care of his stuff and protected his people. But when, he return, when she returns, he's feasting like a king. And Abigail waits for the next morning in the hangover to subside and tells him the news. Hey, I went and talked to David. He was going to kill you. But I told him, I know the Lord's on your side. God will take care of this. And it says it struck his heart. And ten days later, it says God stru struck him and he dies. Nabal dies. And Abigail tells David, God, God took care of you. God dealt with this fool. And actually, at the end of the story, this could almost be a movie. Um, Abigail goes with David. David gets the wise girl, the beautiful girl. And they go, and, and she's glad to go with David because her husband's been a fool. And I imagine, after some time, David's pondering the story. Remember when I was in the wilderness? Remember when I dealt with that guy in the ball? And he writes out this song as a means of reflecting on the fool and then reflecting on how we ought to respond when we encounter the fool. So let's read from Psalm 53 and David's response in remembering this story. He says, To the choir master, according to Mahalath, according to that one tune you know, play it this way, a mescal of David, verse 1, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. 
They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God? There they are in great terror, where there is no terror. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. David starts his meditation, his reflection on the foolish in their, in their acknowledgement of God and then their actions. He says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. David's reminiscing about this particular fool, but fools in general, cuts right to the heart of the problem with all fools. A fool says in his heart, there is no God. At the most basic level, a fool has bungled up his relationship with God. To say in one's heart there is no God is to practically reject the basis of God's existence. I don't need to think about my relationship with God. He doesn't matter when I'm pondering my actions. That breaks your relationship, not just with God, but with all things, because God is the creator of all things. Proverbs says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The awesome understanding of the reality that God, in fact, exists and he has a say in how life ought to be lived. That's how wisdom begins. A fool, fool has cut that notion off at the knees. And this is likely not a philosophical or a religious atheism that has become popular in our modern or postmodern society. That is a stern, purportedly rational system of thought that assumes... A priori, there is no God. Before I even talk about anything, there is no God. And I'm going to create a whole system. And really, there's no basis of rationality if you have no God. We're not talking about a philosophical atheism. We're talking about a practical atheism. This fool, if you, if you went up to him and said, hey, do you believe there's a God? Yeah, sure. We're, we're, we're in a society where there were many gods at this point. Many gods that people worshipped. Yeah, sure, there's a God. But in his heart, in the influencer of his actions, God does not matter. He does not influence my words or my thoughts or my comings or my goings or my actions or the way I plan my Tuesday morning or my Wednesday afternoon. There is no God. It doesn't matter. Bedrock of foolishness. And where does that lead? Verse 1 says, They are corrupt. Doing abominable iniquity, there is none who does good. The foolish do not do good. And of course not. If my foolish heart has decided to live life with the lie, there is no God embedded in my soul, why would there be good? There's no powerful creator God, good in character, pointing to a way life ought to be lived. Friends, this is a bad way to live. Corruption is is sure to follow. Good does not flourish in that environment. When we deceptively break ourselves from the mores of the framework of God, we put ourselves in a false liberty and a dangerous place free from the bounds 
of morality and goodness. In our thinking, and our actions, we've taken ourselves away from the character of God. You don't want to be there. In Proverbs chapter 10, 23, it says, For the fool, doing wrong is like a joke. Doing wrong is like a joke to a fool. You've seen this. You've seen the fool who invents ways to do wrong. Oh, the old, the old ways aren't good enough. Let's invent new ways. Let's push the boundary. Let's jump across the line a little bit more. It's a sport for them. It's a game for him. It's a joke for her. The moral weight of wrong is jettisoned and wrong escalates. If it's all a joke, what's the difference between a small joke and a large joke? It's all a joke. Abominable iniquity. David ponders the state of the fool and it's bad. He continues by explaining that God is observing the fool. In verse 2, God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They've all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. David continues with some Hebrew irony. I love this literary device. A lot of the Hebrew poets will use this to point out the absurdity of something. In verse 1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And, and David continues in verse 2, God looks down from heaven. This, that's how absurd, off-base, ridiculous this fool is. God is saying, I can see you. God is watching this fool who is saying there is no God. This is akin to the kid who will close his eyes and think, if I can't see my, my dad, my dad can't see me. We're good. And the parent is standing there. The dad's standing there. I'm looking at you. I'm watching you close your eyes. I'm right here. It's absurd. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. God looks down from heaven. Of course there's a God. Of course there's a God. And he is searching for anyone who understands. For anyone who possesses the quality that is different than foolishness. The quality of wisdom. Are there any who have understanding about how to put life together? How to be in relationship with God? How to be in relationship with neighbor? How to seek after God? Because he is the fountainhead of wisdom. And the answer is not a positive one. They have all fallen away. That search comes up empty among the children of men. And, here, and here's something that's particularly sad. Together they have become corrupt. This is not a bunch of Nabals being idiotic on their own. Meaning that it's just the isolation, it's just the independence. That's why he's been brought to foolishness. That's why he's corrupt. In reality, together, in concert, as a team, they have become corrupt. We are no, they're no better off in numbers. And David says, there's none who does good. Not even one. And I can totally jive with David here. You encounter a fool who has set themselves up in opposition to the way life ought to be run. They are categorically misjudged, disorganized, corrupt, unjust. And you meet them and you feel like all hope is lost. I can't tell you how many times at my full-time job working the service route, how many times I have sat in my boss's office and just complained 
and just gone, why do we even do this? If everybody's like this, let's just be done. Let's close the doors. Let's not do business anymore. What's the point? If, if it's all like this, we're doomed. No one does good, not even one. And David is musing, musing himself right into a dark place. He moves from the fool's relationship with God to the fool's relationship with God's people. He just continues in verse 4. Have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God? He continues with an exasperated question. Those evildoers, do they know nothing? Are they really that stupid? Are their actions really as devoid of understanding as it seems? And honestly, in observing, it's hard to understand how people can treat other people so poorly, to use them. David's looking out and saying, this guy's using God's people. He's using them for protection. He's using them um, to create a space where his people are safe, where his stuff is okay, so he can be rich and feast like a king. He's eating them up like bread. Is he really that dumb? And in, I, I, I've run into the same thing. I have an understanding of the world that, that places God in proper authority and everyone below him. And my relationship with neighbor is such because it is connected to God. God said, you love your neighbor. That's how you live with people who also have the image of God. Everything has its place. And when I see someone use someone else as a tool or an object, like Nabal does in this story, I think, are they really that dumb? Is their understanding of the world really that disconnected, that deluded? You really just walk by that person? You really don't care about that person's welfare? They have, they have the same value as you. They reflect the same God you do. The same image of God is on them as on you. I've seen many a coworker cheat a customer for a little bit of short-term gain, a little bit extra commission check. And I, I, I think, did you not understand that you broke relationship with that person? You just lied to that person. You just used them to get to their checkbook. Do you not understand that trust has been lost? Do you not understand that the brokenness of your character is exemplified in this? Do you not understand how the world is put together? You don't just use people. David observes their actions with these people and he's just perplexed. Is this really... Is this really how fools act? Do they really not understand? Is it really that bad? And he continues describing the fool. They, there they are in great terror where there is no terror. For God shatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame for God has rejected them. He also sees how they respond in a world to all the wrong things in all the wrong ways. There, there they are in terror where there is no terror. This is the worrying about all the wrong things. This is emphasizing the wrong points. This is getting the newspaper and freaking out about the stock market because the sky is falling. This is worrying about all the minutia of problems when one doesn't need to do that. This is dialing into the daily news cycle and completely buying into all the fear that they sell every day. It's not real. It's conjured up. Terror where there is no terror. 
In Proverbs, it says the fool or the sluggard sits in his home, lazy guy, and he says, I can't go out because there's a lion in the streets. You don't know how dangerous it is out there. I can't go out there. There's a lion out there. There's no lion out there. It's just the thing that they've conjured up to be afraid of. That's, that's akin to someone saying, I can't go drive on 205. You know how dangerous it is on 205? I'm not going to go to work. Terror where there is no terror. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be terrified of all of these things over here because I'm just a fool. The fool is so foolish, he isn't even afraid about the right things. And you have the Hebrew irony here again. The fool is looking over here afraid, out of his mind for no reason, all the while using the people of God for his own end, when the real terror is right behind him. Be terrified of the God you are defying. The God who you've said in your heart, there is no God. The God whose people you are using. It says God shatters the bones. These fools are encamped against the people of God. They lean into the people of God. They plot and plan for their hurt and destruction. They're going to use them to get whatever they can out of them. And God says, I've rejected you, fools. The people of God will put them to shame because God will put the fool in their proper place. God will show them what to fear. You were freaked out about this? I'll show you what is the proper thing to fear. And David leans into the glorious idea that God is the one who does the action. He is the one who brings salvation from fools. David concludes his ballad with a wise response in verse 6. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. David leans into and has been observing this fool and it is frustrating and annoying and disturbing. And if we are honest, we like David want to take salvation into our own hands and end the problem. Wring the fool's neck. But in the story, the wise Abigail encourages David, don't be a fool. Don't let him draw you into his game. And instead, leave salvation in God's hands. The one who can make things actually right. David, in his reminiscing, gives himself a response and a reminder to wait for and long for the salvation of God. The salvation will come from Zion, that special place where God dwelled with his people, where a temple was erected to be with God, where the everlasting king would sit on David's throne. That's where salvation will come. And when that day comes, there will be salvation, but also joy gladness, reason to praise because the wise God will put the world, all creation back together in new harmony and relationship. And those seeking after God, longing for that restoration and deliverance and salvation, we're going to be with God. There's, there's reason for joy there. And those longing, especially when we encounter those who are diametrically opposed to that restoration, we long all the more. Because in those moments, we realize how broken the world really is. How rebellious people really are. And because of those moments, we have a response, a reminder to long for the salvation of God. And this song could just remain a template for us. When I experience 
fool number seven, respond this way. When I meet that type of person, this is what I will do. But Paul, in the New Testament, does not allow us to sit in that position. Paul takes this passage, and where David had a particular focus on a particular person and perhaps a little bit, a a type of person, Paul takes this passage and blows it up to include all of mankind. In Romans 3, verse 9, this may be what you were remembering as we read through this passage. He says, what then? Are, Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, that's everybody, are under sin. As it is written, and then he quotes Psalm 53, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Paul takes this meditation on a fool or fools and vastly widens the scope to all mankind, every Jew, every Greek. I am not just annoyed by the occasional fool. Apart from God, I am the fool. Apart from God, I am corrupt and lack righteousness. Apart from God, you are corrupt and lack righteousness. You are the fool. No one does good, not even one, none of you, not me, not us. When we realize that we have been the fools and the wicked and the corrupt, our longing for the salvation of God increases All the more, David's final verse becomes a plea for us. Oh, that salvation would come from Zion. We realize I don't just need salvation from these people I encounter. I need salvation for myself. I need relationship with God restored. David's longing is our longing, and that longing was met in the person of Jesus. In 1 Peter 2, Peter is talking and he says, As you come to him, that is Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Peter says, in Zion, salvation has come. Christ is our salvation. And he came in that special place that David was longing for. Let God's people be glad. And those, Peter says, who are in Christ are being built up into a spiritual house. We are all together with God, together with him. Let us rejoice. And whoever believes will not be put to shame. Psalm 53 says, the fools will be put to shame. God will reject them and they will be put to shame. But those who believe in Christ, those who seek after God, they will not be put to shame. And to be with God unashamed in full salvation, that is a joyous thing. That is a good thing. David's longing is our longing and both are met in the work of Jesus. If you are just now realizing you're the one that's the fool. Run to God, the God of salvation and joy. And every time you encounter someone who has set their life up in such a way that it is against the God of salvation and joy, let it be a reminder to long for the salvation of God who will restore all things. 
This morning we have another reminder. We're going to take and receive communion. This is a time to be reminded of the wisdom of God who sent us Christ as a means of salvation, as a means of restoration. One who took the punishment and death for fools and enemies like us and one who rose again as the beginning of the restoration of all things. If you do not trust Christ, this would be a great time just to sit and ponder what you've heard in the scriptures in Psalm 53 and also to ask God for help, ask God for salvation. He's ready to listen. He wants to listen. And if you trust Christ, I invite you during the next song, we're going to make our way up the middle aisle, take a cup and a bread, and then return to your seats on the outside. There's also some tables in the back and up on the balcony. And once the song is completed, we're going to take this communion together. We're going to take and remember the wisdom of God together. Let's pray.